Mm. Do you need any water or anything? No. All right, good. We're so we're recording. All right, we're doing this uh, raw. We're not even uh, editing anything in. Welcome back to the Wages of Cinema. I'm your host, Jack, and with me, as always, is... Wifely Duty Corey. And, man, we, we can't even, you know, mess around. We You did some duties today. <laughs> and you did, like, so many wifely duties, you deserve, like, a medal. <laughs> one, maybe one of those purple hearts. <laughs> uh, oh, we're going to get to that. Um, we're going to talk about a couple of new releases uh, that are out. Um... The only thing that they, well, they have a couple things in common. They come from, uh, they're both from Oscar winning filmmakers, uh, who have, uh, you know, pretty, you know, high esteemed reputations and they both have made movies that are out this Christmas season that involve uh, real life people, uh, very different takes on the real life people though, very different kinds of movies. Um, but I think that we should first start, though, with what we just saw. And I don't know how we get into this fucking thing. We saw Welcome to Marwin. Yes. Welcome to Marwin, uh, the latest film by the uh, by, by the director Robert Zemeckis, who, you know, you've probably, even if you don't think you've seen one of his movies, believe me, you've seen his movies. He's, you know, one of the major film-like figures in... Hollywood from, you know, the past, you know, basically for my lifetime, you know, you know, just run down a list, you know, back to the future trilogy, uh, Forrest Gump, uh, contact castaway, uh, used cars, which, you know, if you haven't seen used cars, please do see it, do so. Of course, the very first movie I ever saw in a movie theater that I can remember seeing when I was, uh, really little, who's afraid of Roger Who's afraid of Roger? Ra- Who's afraid of Virginia Rabbit? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, yes. The <laughs> starring Elizabeth Taylor is Roger Rabbit. <laughs> this movie broke my brain. Who who framed Roger Rabbit? You know, really, you know, quality filmmaker. He's kind of lost his way on this movie, hasn't he? This movie is insane. <laughs> Man, you know, it's like we've we've talked about some bad movies on this on this podcast. Um, you know, it's kind of our way, I guess you could say. Um, you know, and it's sometimes, you know, we go in and we kind of know that we might get something that isn't good. Um I didn't want to go into this completely hating it. It has a pretty low rating, obviously, on Rotten Tomatoes right now. It has something like 25%. We read some savage reviews of this movie, too. Yeah, yeah, we didn't just, we didn't just glance over, you know, the rating. We, we read some reviews, uh, David Ehrlich and IndieWire, um, Simon Abrams on Letterboxd, he had a review there. And so, you know, it's not like we weren't completely caught unaware and we'd seen the trailer. Which didn't look great. It it had some very questionable things already in the trailer, but you know I wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt. You know I've I honestly I haven't seen a movie before from Robert Zemeckis that I outright hated. I've seen movies that I've been kind of mixed on and kind of eh. You know he went through a period in the the two thousands where he uh, was 
kind of too maybe too obsessed with motion capture, and he's kind of brought that that back here <laughs> in some wild ways. This movie is terrible. Oh man, the but only- no, I can't. I can't be around the bush though. This movie is fucking garbage. It is so. It is, awful. and I mean, this is like. This is the kind of disaster that you get from a filmmaker. You know, this isn't like Tyler Perry bad where, you know, you get, it's almost like, you know, that he's kind of an untalented hack. So it's just kind of fun to dissect how convoluted he takes a story. Or even, you know, when we talked about um, life itself, you know, that was by somebody who really, you know, thought very highly of themselves when they were making that movie. Robert Zemeckis is clearly a talented filmmaker. He he has such so many tools at his disposal. And as you said to me, what did you say to me when we were going leaving in the parking lot? I don't know what I say to you. You said something. <laughs> See, your brain's broken too. <laughs> oh, your duties are going to be unbecoming. Um, no, you said like hundreds of people. Oh yeah. Hundreds of people somehow thought it was a good idea to spend millions of dollars bringing this vision to life. And Robert Zemeckis has a vision. This is not bland hack work. No, no, that's the thing. You actually leaned over to me, like, about 20 minutes in the movie. Well, this isn't boring. That's true, and this movie is never boring. I was not bored for one second of this movie. No, I was. I was many things. I was baffled. I was horrified. I was gobsmacked. I was embarrassed. I was ready to crawl up into the field position and die. We were literally cringing in our seats. From secondhand embarrassment oh, watching we're gonna, this movie. And we're going to have to talk about cringing, too, based on uh, the lead actor. But all right, let me give you just a little bit of backstory, because you might not know what, what this movie is. So um, this actually uh, is, quote-unquote, based on a true story. The key word there is based. Yeah. and <laughs> Based, like, you know, like drugs. We uh, should say at the outset that as we savage this movie... Nothing we're saying should be connected to the real Mark Hogenkamp at yeah, all. Yeah, so this guy, this is based, the, so the real the, the real story of this, and there was act, there was a documentary. Which you saw, but I didn't. Yeah, which is called Marwin Call. Um, and boy, if you're wondering why didn't they call the movie Welcome to Marwin Call, oh, they'll tell you. Um, and I feel like it was a different explanation <laughs> when I got in the documentary. But anyway. Mark Hogenkamp, he was an illustrator, lives up in upstate New York, and he, uh, one day, this is around uh, 2000, he was at a bar, and he was, uh, you know, there are these, like, basically these neo-Nazis, and they were talking shit, and Mark was drunk, so he was kind of talking shit back, involving, you know, again, that the the thing with Mark Hogenkamp, he's... He was a uh, cross-dresser. He liked to wear heels. And I guess that must have come out during this this, this bar argument. And these five neo-Nazis beat the ever-loving crap out Yeah, they were disgusted by the fact that he said that he was a cross-dresser. Yeah, and they beat him so badly that, you know, he basically could have died. But it, the the almost in kind of a way that you almost wonder, like, man, 
if he had just died, maybe that would have been, you know, better for him. Well, not, not better, but he was left without any memories of basically anything that about his life or his personal life. Um, and he basically had to start fresh. He had to like, do physical therapy. He had to, you know, try to put himself back together and he couldn't draw anymore. He couldn't even write his name. And in real life, uh, also his health insurance ran out. Yeah. So we learned from the David Ehrlich review of this movie. And it's also in the, the documentary yeah, too. That in real life, Mark Hogan camp designed this therapy for himself because his health insurance ran out. And yeah. so he had to design his own like one person rehab. So he has to relearn basic skills like walking and talking. And he also has to confront the fact that he's lost all his personal memories. So basically he has no identity anymore. Right. And so uh, when the health insurance ran out, he needed to try to do something for himself. And, you know, art therapy is a real thing as well. Like people who are making art to try to cope with something, you know, th that's a very powerful thing. Um, and so the documentary uh, went into how Mark uh, basically designed uh, his own art installation in his backyard. He created these World War II tableaus where... Uh, a character named Hoagie, quote unquote, uh, is kind of the hero of all these World War II stories where he's, you know, fighting against Nazis. There are battle scenes. Um, he's surrounded by a lot of women. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and ba basically the documentary was kind of following him as he makes these photographs of his, uh, of, of all these dioramas he sets up. Yeah. And now the photos of his art installations have been exhibited because the photos are so good of his art installations. Yeah. He, he, he started with little galleries and then he built up to, you know, getting shows in, uh, in New York City. And so he's been, you know, again, and, and like this documentary about him also gave him more notoriety. I would I would kind of guess if it wasn't for the documentary, Robert Zemeckis wouldn't have heard of him. Um, yeah. And this is actually the second time he's done this too. Um, a few years back, he made a movie called The Walk, which I don't know. Did you see Man on Wire? No. Really? I thought maybe you did. No, it got great reviews, but the subject didn't interest me. Yeah. See, The Walk actually that was also Robert Zemeckis doing. You know, taking a real-life figure and putting his sort of stamp on it, his style. And that worked a lot better. That had some flaws. Um, the biggest problem with that movie, that had Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he played this guy, I think his name was like Philippe Petit or some. I don't, I don't even fucking remember. Uh, sorry, JLG, if you're listening. Uh, I, I probably mispronounced his name. Joseph Gordon Levitt, JGL. Sorry, uh, that was that was fucking Godard's JLG. <laughs> anyway, that was about the guy who walked across uh, the two twin towers back in the seventies. He set up a wire and walked across it. Um, the biggest problem with that movie was unnecessary narration. That script had a major problem with uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt. That movie's character basically talks to the audience. For like the entire movie, mm -hmm. and it's so unnecessary. But when it actually focuses on 
like the plot of the story, how he organized this kind of basically this in a way a heist movie where he gathered these people together so he could they could pull off this basically artistic stunt of him walking the the towers. That was really good. In this case, nothing is really good. Oh. What he decided to do here, like it it baffles me. I I have to wonder, I think I read a review that posited that maybe Zemeckis actually kind of personally connected to the story, but in a way that's very specific, which is, you know, again, he's had these movies like the Polar Express, uh, Beowulf, Christmas Carol. You haven't seen any of those movies. No, I'm not into that Uncanny Valley crap. You're not into seeing, like, the deadless, lifeless eyes, <laughs> like a doll's eyes. <laughs> well, now these are doll's <laughs> eyes. <laughs> Let Quint tell you. Um, and I have to wonder if he must have related to this whole idea of somebody who's kind of creating their own world and, you know, we're allowed to kind of come in and see it. But what it's it's interesting again that you have the documentary and I like I said I, this guy's life story in reality is really compelling and it's kind of a triumph of the human spirit because yeah. he was able to save himself he, yeah you know he was able to find you know when art can basically resurrect your soul yeah the real story is both fascinating and it's a mix of both like tragic and inspirational so the raw material for a really great story is there but this movie is a flaming disaster it it shows that if you have the wrong execution it can sink your movie this has some of the worst execution of anything i've ever seen it is like my fear going into this, I don't know if you were thinking about this, but I was thinking that at worst, this might be like Sucker Punch. Did that occur to you at all before this? Um, I was thinking Collateral Beauty. Before <laughs> this. <laughs> oh, why Collateral Beauty? Well, because I had read the movie was very um, mawkish and very saccharine and offensive in the way that it treated serious problems. At times, this movie is mawkish, but the thing about this, about Sucker Punch was, you know, that's also a movie about a kind of bafflingly done story where, you know, you have the story within the story. I have blessedly pretty much forgotten Sucker Punch. There are still little fragments of Sucker Punch still with me. It's like little shards in my brain it's like somebody who's been in a war zone sometimes they still have little bits of the war like literally in their skull that's like sucker punch so Um, maybe if you put sucker punch and collateral beauty in a blender you get welcome um, yeah but it's even more it's even crazier than that because it's he this movie lacks all subtlety it, it, it not only wields a sledgehammer, it wields, like, a cannon yeah. over and over a- again at you. And it just, 
I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, Mark, we were talking before when we were in the car ride home about Mark Hogenkamp hopefully got paid to yeah. get his life rights, you know, because that's what happens often when you get when when you're dealing with a real life figure, you have to pay the life rights to someone. And we team, hope he was well paid for this. Yeah. If you watch again, if you watch the real Mark Hogenkamp in the documentary, he's basically like a very gruff cigarette smoking dude. Um, you know, hopefully he got some money for some more dolls. Uh, but from the look of this, it, it, it kind of does him a total disservice. I would be kind of insulted if I was the real Mark Hogan camp. It kind of treats his, you know, real trauma, like as if he was in it, like as if he has, and I get the movie wants to try to show you as PTSD of some sort, but how it does it. This is oh, it, 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 this is the worst treatment of PTSD slash panic attacks I've ever seen. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another thing I could compare it to. Um, like at times, I thought like Mark he, he gets into such a state sometimes. I thought he was going to start becoming like Rain Man, you know, where he starts like hitting his head and goes like ah, you know, like that yeah. kind of level. And there are points where. Okay, so like we said, he's created these World War II scenarios, and the way Zemeckis does it is, you know, he'll suddenly be, like, Hogan Camp will be thinking about something, he'll have an interaction with a character, Mm. we'll get to Leslie Mann in a second. Oh, God. (laughs) As the next-door neighbor. Um, And then that will kind of fling him into the sort of ongoing adventures of Marwin, and, you know, he dropped, he has... Uh, the then he has like his version, his doppelganger Hoagie, and all the other women who have basically supposed to have been like serving him, um, through his therapy. And it, like, there are times where he'll suddenly be flung into his fantasy world. Like, yeah. that's like we're flung from the reality with Steve Carell as Hogan Camp into these animated scenes. And there are points where, like, he'll suddenly be in his house, and he'll be freaking out, and the, like, gunfire will be happening, and he'll, like, fall on the floor and start screaming. It's so over the top, and it's filmed in, like, a sitcom-y way. It's... Yeah, like, you know, like he, he'll, he, like, screams, and you might have seen this bit in the trailer... Where Leslie Mann will not like knocks on the door and because he's hearing him screaming over and over again, I need ammo, I need ammo, and she's like, "Did you say gumbo?" And he's like, "No gumbo, no gumbo." Yeah, that's this movie's idea of comedy. You know, I wish they had somehow um, written into the. Fa- I wish they had written into the script that Leslie Mann's character was brain damaged because that would be the <laughs> thing. That would explain yeah. her demeanor and behavior. But anyway. See, I feel like the, the, the biggest, another huge issue with this movie, aside from it, from the, bolt, the, the execution part of it, that's one mm-hmm. element of the disaster of this movie. There's also just the complete aroma of bullshit as well. Yeah, there is not one moment in this movie, not one second that feels emotionally authentic. Uh you know what though, you know what I will give the movie this. It had that there was that scene 
between uh like when Mark Hogenkamp he goes to like this kind of general store and this this woman is working there and let me look up uh the character name. Name yeah was Roberta. Roberta yeah she's played by uh, Merritt Weaver is the actress she, she looked familiar to me what else have I seen her in? um she's she's popped up in lots of stuff if I show you you know her list of credits um Birdman's uh, signs. Michael Clayton. She's one of those people. Oh, yeah, she's been in a lot of stuff. Yeah. But anyway. Um, but anyway, she, like, is the kind of one character who actually, you know, I don't know if she's, like, romantically interested in him, but, like, he comes to the store to buy his dolls, and she asks him, like, uh, do you want to maybe come over uh, for, you know, for dinner? And they have, like, this kind of awkward exchange. Um, but I kind of bought that scene a little bit. It was, again, it was a small moment, but there I felt like she was at least a little more trying. I don't know if the writing was completely there for her, but in that scene, at least, I felt like, well, okay. Roberta is the most grounded character in the movie. Roberta's, She's not in it enough. Um, they basically give her that scene, and then they give her a scene at the very end, as if to say, oh, we didn't forget about Roberta. Also... One thing that we thought of multiple times is the way you see Steve Carell carrying on in this movie creates certain unfortunate associations. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into this now. Now, I was thinking about this especially for you because you, the, pa the past couple weeks, you've been revisiting The Office. Yes, I'm... Like most people, it was a very, very popular show. I'm a big fan of The Office. Me too. I watched The Office for years when it was on. And then lately, over the last few weeks, I've rewatched probably like 50 to 60 episodes of The Office. It's a very rewatchable show. It, yeah. It's like as funny and as cringy as you it is the first time you watch it, I don't think it loses much of its... Uh, you know, effect when you rewatch it. Yeah, it, it, so you know, it, uh, it's not just Steve Carell too. The whole cast is. Fantastic. The Office is amazing, and its cultural footprint is very large, which means that, like it or not, most people are going to associate Steve Carell with Michael Scott first and yeah. always. Oh, I just thought of something actually. Carell in both the movies we're going to talk about. Yes, he is. Yeah. So, uh, as a filmmaker, you should probably be aware of the fact that, like, most of the people in the are who are going to see your movie. Well, I don't think anyone's seeing this movie, but most of the people seeing this movie are going to have at least passing familiarity with the character of Michael Scott. Yes. <laughs> and then. Maybe don't write your horrendously um, tin-eared, inauthentic panic scenes to be like outtakes from The Office. Yeah, outtakes from The Office, and it, you know, and so, so the movie. Here's where I was getting to. Also, when I was talking about with bullshit, as far as again taking this man's real life story, putting it into a movie, and of course, you know, move, movies based on real life take you know you you expect bullshit a lot of the time you know i mean uh, for example green book uh, that just came out that had 
you know, it, it, there was good stuff about the movie, but there was also a lot of bullshit there. With this, I never, I just didn't buy that. A, you know that he never, he never had like that neighbor. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe he did, but it certainly couldn't have been like this. And as you said, Leslie Mann in the movie. She comes off kind of brain damaged too. Like, yeah, she, I, I know she's supposed to be, you know, the nice, friendly new neighbor who's kind of very charmed by these kind of idiosyncratic but dioramas. She has this incredibly cloying baby voice. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if she and she talks like this, and it's very terrible. Do you think Leslie Mann? I don't know if this has anything to do with the movie, but. Yeah, she's she's been around for a while. Do you think she's trying to like hold on to her youth or something? Well, yeah, she comes off as super cutesy and childish and cloying, and she reacts to him like they're both children. Yeah, like she talks to him like he is a child. And she is also a child. And then, and then it kind of ups also how he talks to her, too. And, you know, and I'm sorry. And I know Mark's, you know, Zemeckis could do what he wants. You know, I know it's his movie. But you watch that real Mark Hogan camp. He, he's not at all like the guy in this story. Yeah. He, he was like, he was almost like my, my impression of Mark Hogan camp from that documentary. He was almost like a mechanic. Yeah. So. They, I know I'm making these comedic illusions, but they almost make both Hogan Camp and Leslie Mann come off like the character Simple Jack from Tropic <laughs> You saw Simple Jack? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, man. So, and I didn't see the documentary. <laughs> But I watched the trailer right before we watched this. So I watched Mo- Mark Hogan Cam speak. You're right. He comes off kind of like a world weary. Um, he looks. Mecha- he looks more. He he comes off more how I picture like Charles Bukowski than like uh, you know like again Steve Carell. He has a little. Bit, he's a bit. Yeah. He's very. He's a bit Michael Scott. He's like Michael Scott if, you know, for example, I was watching some of the episodes of The Office again with you. I watched a couple of them when he was dating, uh, was Jan? Yeah. Yeah, his his boss. And, you know, there are a lot of awkward scenes in that where he's saying very much the wrong things around her. And, you know, she tries to take in stride and then sometimes she, he, she pulls him aside I felt like those scenes were happening in this movie, but without, like, the awareness for the audience. So it made it cringy, but in a different way. It was so weird, and... And it leads up to, you know, he obviously has, like, a gigantic crush on Leslie Mann's character, Nicole, to the point where he creates, um, you know, a doll out of her and incorporates her into the story obviously and it and then it reaches a point where you you kind of know you you kind of know where this train is going um and even that scene was especially cringy too when she turns him down yeah so eventually he proposes to her 
kind just like the doll proposes to the Nicole doll. Yeah. And again, when we get into this idea that the Leslie Mann character seems touched. Um, yeah, she's like, I cr- I have I want to make my own teapots and have a tea house and but when the Steve Crow character proposes to her, she seems shocked that he has a thing for her, even though she has seen like multiple. She's seen all the photos of the dolls kissing. She's seen the pose (laughs) dolls like making out. Yeah, he's she's already gotten multiple warning signs. He's even said to her, you know, when you, you know, I thought you would really like stilettos, and then she's like, you mean the doll would like stilettos? And it's like, oh yeah, right, right. So he's not hidden his light under a bushel. He's communicated to her pretty directly. I'm into you. And frankly, she seems to be kind of encouraging it. And also, it seems weird, too. There's also another character, uh, this guy who... Oh, I'm blanking on his name now. Like Kurt, she ha- I think. Yeah, she has this... Kurt or Kirk? Yeah, there's this guy either... Yeah, it's Kurt, uh, okay. played by Neil Jackson. And basically, he's the one who... Oh, man. Oh, there's Again, there's so much to unpack the soundtrack when he pulls up to cat scratch fever <laughs> so that you know he's a bad guy. Um, they might as well have just had Ted Nugent play that character. Um, it would have been less obvious. And, you know, he's, you know, hashtag, you know, me too, abusive ex-boyfriend, yeah. ex-cop, who immediately, as soon as he appears in front of Mark, Sends Mark into one of his tailspin, oh my god, he's a Nazi. Which actually, you know, if you think about it, that's actually not that bad <laughs> an illusion. Um, no offense to any cops. But yeah, the Leslie Man character... But why would she even be with that guy? Why would she even be with Kurt? Yeah, and... Like, what they should have done, what the real flaw here is, alright, you could have had this, like, split narrative thing where you have Mark in the real world creating his dolls, you know, trying to deal with the upcoming uh, court date. That's kind of the spine of the movie where the people beat him up or are going to be sentenced in court. And you could have had him interacting with people and then split that up with his, you know, showing his fake fantasy life. But you had to make the real world scenes actually feel real. Yeah. You couldn't, you, this is just so weird and syrupy and obvious and so it yeah and another weird uh, thing this seems minor but even things like the way the characters dress and talk it's so cartoony and it's bizarre yeah i mean uh, i mean i don't know how it is in a small town new york but i feel like it's pretty ordinary and all that. And I grew up in a small <coughs> town. It's not Mayberry. <laughs> yeah, this is what Robert Zemeckis thinks like a small town is like. And it's it's ridiculous. It it's like um it, and like no and I get it. You wanna have like a saccharine feel, but that's a problem because you know, it, it's either Everybody is really nice, or they're mean Nazis. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's 
nobody is a normal, like, flesh and blood human being with dimension and nuance. Everyone is either super sickly sweet or they're literal Nazis. Or, oh my god, or Diane Kruger as... What the oh fuck was God. her name? She's uh, she she pops up as uh oh, I didn't realize let I think Robert Zemeckis' daughter is No. What? Oh my God. What? Okay, so in the movie, there's also a character that Mark throws in there who's supposed to be like this porn actress. Did he cast his daughter as the porn actress? I think so! Maybe. Oh my or, god! Or a family member, or maybe it was his wife. I, I don't know. She looked pretty young. Yeah. Therapy. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. Like, look at the list. Like, she's been in a bunch of. Uh, he's been in a few of his movies. This is disgusting. <laughs> that is the grossest thing about this entire. <laughs> that would be like if you know we were we were talking uh, a, a little bit before about. You know, the fact that your your dad is an artist and he sometimes has created some photographs and stuff of like uh. you know, things of that, that interest him as an artist. And he, inv- he involved like your mom in some pictures. Yeah. Imagine if he involved you. I know, which he didn't because he's not disgusting. Oh my god. Wow, that's even that makes us even pervier, man. That's yeah. Cool. Well anyway, yeah, Diane Kruger is Deja Thoris. Who is supposed to be like the the sort of Belgian witch of the the fake town? And man, how they bring her into the movie! Oh. She's just pills. It's blatantly obvious from like the first scene. Yet the movie doesn't literally tell us this until like the last scene. But what's weird? Trust me, you'll figure it out in like thirty seconds. I guess yeah, it's supposed to be an addiction metaphor, I guess. But but he is supposed to still take one of the pills, isn't he? Like, isn't that? Well, is- yeah, this has a kind of offensive attitude towards psychiatric medication. It has an offensive attitude towards psychiatric meditation, medication. It has an offensive attitude towards women, too. Yeah, well, what? again, you know what would have been interesting in this movie? If they had at least one character who was neither in love with Mark or hated him enough to beat the crap out of him. Yeah. If they had one character who was like, I don't know how I feel interacting with this obviously weird guy who has a lot of problems. Yeah. And, you know, and also it's, they show like for one scene each, just one scene they give to, in the real world, to Janelle Monet. Who is on the poster? She play. She's uh, supposed to be his physical therapist in the real world, and she's GI Julie. And she's then in one scene. She's in one scene, and Gwendolyn Christie is in a laughable scene where she's like, I guess, his stay at home nurse or something. Not stay at home. She's a she's a caretaker who he says comes by once a month to like run errands for him. But it seems like he can run errands, though, for himself, though. He has, like, a job. Yeah, by the time the movie starts, he obviously still has emotional problems, but he doesn't really seem to suffer a lot of intellectual disabilities. I mean, he has a very bad memory, obviously, because there's notes everywhere in the house. Right. But 
every character in this movie. Well, a, well, a, pr- a problem I think is if this had maybe spanned a longer period of time, yeah. maybe it could have, maybe that could have worked. Maybe you could have worked with stuff a little better. But the structure of the script is fucked up because they try to make it all within the span of maybe like it seems like maybe a week or two. Where you know, again, the the spine of it is. Uh oh, the sentencing is happening. You're gonna have to show up to court and you know face the the people who beat you. Okay, but that means that you're short shrifting all these other characters who really should get more time, who are you know real people. Yeah, well, in a good movie, they would be real people. Yeah, well, yeah, in a real movie, they'd be real people. And yeah, as we said, the women characters are there to either just serve him. Or in the case of Diane Kruger, you know, I'm the evil bitch who, you know, is... And it's so weird because on the one hand, the Steve Carell character delivers speeches about how much he loves women. And that's why he loves to wear women's high heels. So he can connect to the essence of women. (laughs) And he has a speech about their essences. Do you remember, did Ed Wood ever give a speech <laughs> like that when he was on the date with Patricia Arquette and Ed Wood? No, he didn't do that. <laughs> oh, incidentally, I'm going to break your heart a little bit. You know who co-wrote this movie? Who? Caroline Thompson. I don't know who that is. Let me show you her credits. I'm about to make you cry. All right, probably. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, damn it. Here. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my god! You just rewatched a movie she wrote the other night. You watched your beloved Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh my god! Yeah. Actually, though, looking at her credits, I'm not surprised. It seems like she pretty much mostly writes children's movies. Yeah, but uh, well, it's, she started, I think, in a good spot. She she started her career. Um, you know, with like the Adams family and Edward Scissorhands. Um, actually, this is her first credit in a while. She hadn't written anything in like 10 years. This movie is very childish. It's yeah. very childish. And yeah, it treats like real world issues. You know, like we, we live in a world right now where, you know, Nazis are kind of in again, which is really fucking scary. But I'm thinking. Every character in this movie feels like a child. All the female characters feel like children. The Steve Carell character feels like a child, which again, it's, you, know, you it, do not get that sense from the real Mark Hogan camp it, at all. It's coddling. Yeah. It's coddling you. And also talking about bullshit too, you brought up about the whole thing where he mentions heels, give me the essence of women. Like he's Jack D. Ripper in Doctor <laughs> Strange Love. I deny them my essence. Um, or there's this scene. Well, well, no, but in real life, Hogan Camp was a full-on cross-dresser, yeah. and the documentary even suggests that he might have been a bisexual too. This movie completely bypasses that. Yeah, in fact, there are multiple scenes where Steve Carell says, "It's just shoes. I'm not a cross-dresser. It's just." The shoes. And, you know, if, if this had been, like, if that had been what it was in real life, too, fine. But it wasn't. Like, Zemeckis 
half-assed it. He didn't go all the way. He either should have just completely not had it in the movie, which you know would have been terrible, but whatever. Or he should have just make him a cross-dresser. Yeah. What, were you going to lose, like, a few viewers in Dubuque and something? Yeah, this movie's bombing anyway. I know, I'm... He should have taken more risks. It's 2018. We can handle the fact that the guy was beat up because he was a cross-dresser. Yeah. Not just that he had an obsession with women's shoes, but he was a crossdresser. And that's it, it it it's that's what makes it kind of insulting too because again, like hate crimes are very serious in our country. You know, we we try to take them seriously for a good reason. Even the whole thing of Mark giving the the speech in the court is supposed to be emphasizing that. Um but this movie tries to minimize that by making it, you know, just about the shoes. No, don't soft pedal it. Don't so, and especially in 2018, make make him like full, you know, make him a fully embraceable character like that. And you could even have it where, you know, a character like Leslie Mann, you know, is fine with the the cross dressing too. But no, they don't do that. Yeah, and this is like the Mark Helgenkamp story that's safe for your grandmother. <laughs> your you know, very soft Hallmark grandmother. Yeah, it's very, it's very weird. And there's that scene too where this is when they're in the CGI verse, and Hoagie looks like he's about to be killed by one of the Nazis. I know where you're going. To. And then the Nazis talking about like he's going to take out the women of Marwin, and then. The CGI hoagie says, and this is a verbatim quote, women are the saviors of the world. At that moment, I think everybody in the theater heard me, like, smacking my face so hard. So, Uh, (laughs) like, are you kidding me? On the one hand, there are these schmaltzy speeches about, like, the fairer (laughs) sex. Why why wasn't Mark Hogan camp a speaker at the Women's March? (laughs) (laughs) So, on the one hand, you have these cringy, cringy speeches about, like, I love women so much. I want to capture their essence. Women are the saviors of the world. Um, the doll is always getting bailed out by the women of Marwin. But on the other hand, there is not a single female character in this movie that has even two dimensions. Yeah, and again, they could have maybe done it with Roberta if they maybe gave her more time. If maybe she wasn't relegated to like one scene where you know she kind of shows interest and then we don't you know we barely see her again for the rest of the movie like it's he again he says women are the saviors of the world and yet he's constantly taking women for granted yeah and there's this idea that the female characters first of all again they are all like totally uncritically adoring of him Mm -hmm. there is not one moment where any of the female characters um registers any sense of like maybe this is a little weird this guy modeled a doll after me and like plays with it all the time well yeah well again that would be okay if you had a few characters who were kind of cool with that but you should but it would be interesting to at least have a character who's like 
what? No, that that's really weird. You know, like the one character who questions Mark, you know, they leave that to be the asshole ex-boyfriend who of course is given the, he's given, he's becomes one of the Nazis. And I don't know. I would imagine, I'm sure there are people in real life who would probably not appreciate. Yeah. Well, I, th- I, that's, I have to wonder again how much Zemeckis was really interested in Hogan Camp's story. He wasn't. I don't think he no, was. No, I don't think he was. I think he was more interested in just this visual aspect of making dolls into a thing. You know where, like, I almost wish, like, this movie had gone even weirder and it maybe like, the dolls like take over like in the real world or something <laughs> if it become like toy story <laughs> but if like you know i don't know if you remember in the original toy story you had that character sid and there's that really great scene where uh woody like suddenly reveals his talking self and all of sid's dolls come back to life and then, you know, Woody says, so play nice. <laughs> and so Sid suddenly sees the toys can talk. Imagine if that was, like, in this movie. Oh, man. Oh, I just remembered. Like, there are also some really scary bits of CGI, too. Like, not even so much. Well, there is, obviously, in the Marwin world. Uh-huh. But there's a bit where, like, Mark's at work. And they show, like, I guess Steve Car- like Mark is fantasizing whatever and they bring him out of the fantasy by showing you in one shot the doll face hoagie turning into mark yeah that was horrifying it was that was mortifying and because so much of the movie is their cgi dolls it almost made me feel like the real people didn't look real yeah yeah i mean i know that this is done it was probably done with uh, motion capture that's how you know this process is where all the actors are actually there god can you imagine how like steve carell is like you really want me to say this okay women are the saviors of the world oh my god it's so phony yeah it's so like Give us a pat on the back for yeah. g- being empathetic, and it's it's bullshit. Yeah, you don't you don't need to have a male character give a bunch of speeches about the beauty of women. Just have one female character who's actually a good character. Just one. Yeah, like. You know, and you know, it can happen. We saw it in The Favorite. That movie has great female characters. They're all terrible people, but they're well written. I was going to say, The Favorite is like ten times the feminist statement a movie like this is. <laughs> this movie's a statement. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say about this. I know we're not going through the plot of this. There like isn't we did other really movies. a plot, though. Yeah, that's the thing, too. This is kind of... And I know, like I said, it kind of builds up to this courtroom thing, but that's what also makes this frustrating is that the the, the spine of this movie sucks. Like, by I, and I know I, I sometimes complain, and we're, when we get into Vice, I'm going to complain about this too, where you're just kind of recounting the events of a story. And I know this is trying to do a little different, 
But in this case, we needed more time with these people because otherwise we're just getting them at the point where Mark is everybody, everybody loves Mark and Mark is a fucked up individual and it, it makes for a very unpleasant experience because we're not getting arcs. Nobody has an arc. I mean, Mark, I guess you could say Mark has something of an arc, but even then it's it, that feels kind of false too. Yeah, Mark, and again, Mark's arc isn't really realistic, though, because he's very, you know, emotionally um, disturbed, as you can imagine, throughout most of the movie. But then he literally has one revelation when playing with his dolls, and then everything is fine by the end of the movie. Yeah, just one revelation. And see what would... Again, that's why I say this uses a, like a not only a sledgehammer cannonball uh, as far as subtlety goes. Man, I used to think I, like people were hard on Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is like a Bergman movie compared to this. <laughs> um, you know, it, it. How do I put this? You, you, you need to actually. It's a, also it's supposed to be three years. Well, after the attack. Yeah, it we pick up and it's three years after the attack. Yeah, so nothing. It seems like he had just been attacked like a month before. I love too the exposition fairy when <laughs> Steve Carell goes to work. Oh, God. Um, a customer at the bar is like, "Oh, that's the guy who got beat up, right?" And the bartender tells. Yeah tells us helpfully what happened yeah 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 that happens too it's like this is a movie meant for almost like it's so confused because in tonally in a lot of ways it feels like a movie for like really small children yeah and yet it involves nazis you know like a hate crime and again robert zemeckis's daughter has a porn scene <laughs> that's so creepy i hope it's his wife i hope that like he robbed the crate uh, i, I gotta look wife. up who leslie zemeckis is now because i yeah i mean I, I maybe it's like he got married to someone who's a lot younger if it's his daughter him. i'm like calling the cops when we're done leslie zemeckis uh 2001 oh spouse okay thank god okay yeah 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 he's, he's just a cra- he's just a grody cradle robber yeah, born in 1969 as Leslie Elizabeth Harder. Okay, so but, all right. He's so he just that's an interesting thought too that he puts his Zemeckis puts his own wife into a into scenes as a porn actress. Actually, she looks a lot younger than that. Yeah, and so. uh, yeah, so uh, good for her. Uh, any final thoughts about this movie? Um. Because I don't know if we've conveyed how much of a baffling experience this was. Just how this is a filmmaker who makes, like, every wrong choice. The casting is wrong. You know, I don't think Steve Carell... I think he was miscast for this movie. Yeah, and we know Steve Carell can do... Foxcatcher! I know. Steve Carell is a quality actor, and... He's also, I know I said in this movie that he comes off very Michael Scotty, but, you know, he's a versatile actor. He's capable of doing 
things that are in no way related to the office, but I mean, I don't think anyone could have given a good performance with this, given the material, but he was miscast, and it just doesn't work at all. It was miscast. All. Leslie Mann was miscast. Uh, but then her whole part shouldn't have even been here. Um, and it, either people are miscast, or they're just cast. Oh, I didn't touch on the soundtrack that much. Again, I, I mentioned Cat Scratch Fever. Oh, God, they ruined a Jack White song Yeah, at one point. Um... Love the pain, Jack. Love the pain. What? That's from the movie. Oh! In Janelle Monae's one scene, oh. when she's doing physical therapy and Steve Crow's in, and Steve Crow's in pain, because physical therapy is painful, she tells him, you've got to love the pain. Oh, Janelle Monae, what is she doing pain here? Pain is a rocket Janelle, fuel. Janelle, this is the year Janelle Monae put out Dirty Computer. Did she really just like <laughs> Robert Zemeckis that much that she felt she had to be in this? You know, like Gwendolyn Christie, I get. She probably just needs the work, but. Yeah. Um, Being Brienne of Tarth alone isn't going to pay the bills. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is, uh, along with that Clint Eastwood movie, uh, 1517 to Paris, this is like the worst film by a major filmmaker I've seen all year. It's really terrible. Although it is, like we said, if you do watch it, you're not going to fall asleep. It's not yeah. that kind of dull. This is a, a filmmaker who is reaching so, so far high up that it's like just... It's completely tone deaf. It has no understanding of psychology or emotions, none of the characters feel realistic, and because it's dealing with really heavy stuff, yeah. it's so bad, it almost crosses over into, like, offensive territory. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And... Yeah, no, it. I thought I was kind of offended by it, too. Um, not... I don't know if the... My being offended was more on behalf of, like, just other people, maybe, who might see this, but also... I think it's just my intelligence was kind of offended. The fact that this is supposed to pass as like a really touching, heartwarming story when you can't even get your main character straight and you can't get the tone straight. You can't decide whether you want to be like this really goofy comedy. Oh, that's another thing, too. You said in the theater to next to me, this movie's killed puns for you. Yeah, so I am a lover of bad puns. This movie has some really horrible puns, and they're not fun. And I don't think I have ever um, just been stone silent in face of a, of a bad yeah. pun. And we won't get into the fact that Zemeckis thought the stupid CGI spectacle story was actually interesting in and of that itself. Makes up, that makes up easily, at least if not half, like 40% of the movie. Yeah. And it's just crap. It's just total crap. Like, it almost made me pine for those scenes in Sucker Punch that are like music videos. Yeah. Mar Robert Zemeckis is way, way, way too into playing with CGI. I wish he had just played with some dolls, like, not in front of a camera and gotten it out of his system. Yeah. And I hated how every character in this movie was Simple Jack. And <laughs> <laughs> well, more, more, mostly the, the main two characters. But, yeah, I get what you mean. This is... 
this is such a, like a bad cartoon. And, yeah. it, and again, it's out of a real tragedy. Just just go watch the documentary instead. Just yeah. go watch like just go watch that because again, you know, with the key thing too that we didn't really touch on, the photographs those are those are way more powerful. What what Mark Hogenkamp really did? Yeah, that's way more powerful than what Zemeckis tries to do here. Yeah, I even though I didn't see the documentary, I have seen a bunch of Mark Hogenkamp's <coughs> photos, and he communicates more emotion in one photo than this entire misbegotten film does. Yeah, yeah, he he he, Mark Hogenkamp like made photos the way that uh what's his name my left foot <laughs> how he like uh, you know he wrote a book with his foot um all right let's move on though uh okay. let's move on to another biopic which we actually we saw this a few days ago uh, we saw this on christmas day but i thought it might be worth telling you a little bit about vice we saw vice yes uh another uh story of uh you know Man in America. And this guy does not get kicked in the head. I wish he had. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, uh, I'm only serious. Um, Dick Cheney, uh, Vice President to George W. Bush, and, you know, basically all around uh, class class A uh, human monster. Yeah. Uh, he, he gets the uh, movie treatment by Adam McKay. Um Basically, largely kind of going from um, his early years to the end of the Bush years um, with a little bit of it jumps around a tiny bit here and there. Actually, not uh, here and there. It does it a lot. Jumps around a lot. Yeah. And the thing you know about this is that um, this is Adam McKay who's directing this film. And, you know, he did the big short a few years ago. He really decided to make a break from... Uh, he was mostly known for Will Ferrell comedies and stuff like that. You know, like he made the two Anchorman movies. Mm. He did Step Brothers. Um, I think Talladega Nights. So that was really his bread and butter. He started actually on SNL as well. So, you know, I think he was there during the Bush years too. Um, but he, you know, clearly had a lot to say about the housing crisis. He took a book, uh, that tried to explain it and made it a really fresh, inventive movie. Yeah, we both really liked The Big Short a lot. Yeah, if you haven't seen The Big Short, that's a film which, um, you know, really tries to, in a very entertaining way, unpack how much of a ludicrous boondoggle the the finan- the housing crisis was and how basically these people got away with making a complete house of shit that tumbled and that and that movie had a really clear sense of um here are the people who are really doing terrible things here are people who are really going their wrong way and christian bale was in that too and do you remember christian bale much in that movie no yeah he was the one he it's funny because he actually was the one that got an oscar nomination from that cast and he, I remember him in that movie was like a, oh, I com- do he was an that. oddball accountant guy. Uh, you know, like the guy in the office who has his shoes off and is like gripping the carpet with his toes. Um, but here he's, he's Dick Cheney. Um, 
So, I mean, I like this movie, but I think you and I both have some pretty big criticisms of it. Yeah, my my like bullet point review of this movie is that it's entertaining. Christian Bale and Amy Adams deliver strong performances. Yeah. But it's pretty shallow, I feel like. Yeah, and it's surprisingly shallow in ways that um, it's not consistently so. I think that, uh, as I've told you before, I think that the first half of this movie, when it's focused more on Cheney's initial ascent in politics, when he stops being kind of like a drunken louse and being, you know, this... You know, basically, he had DUIs early in his life in Wyoming. Um, there's a really great scene, by the way, early on where he like is getting talked down by Amy Adams, uh, and there are like these flies there that are all kind these of around flies them, flies buzzing around them, even landing on them at some point. And and so, that 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 was a very tactile scene. So it's not completely dramatically satisfying because, again, it's kind of shallow. But it's also not, like, that funny. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's funny stuff in it, but if it was going to be kind of shallow, I would have wanted it to be even funnier. Yeah, well, the way that, um, and I'm not saying The Wolf of Wall Street is shallow. I think that actually has a lot of really deep, meaningful things to say about living in America and, and greed and, and all yeah. that. But that's a movie that's really funny, and it kind of gets, it helps you get along with knowing that, okay, we're getting versions of these real-life people, and they're probably not how they were in real life, but that's fine. In this case, it it tries to frame it by Jesse Plemons is this character who is kind of telling you details here and there. And we don't really know what his deal is until near the end of the film. Mm. Um, I wonder if the movie, whether they should have really kept him in it or cut him out. I don't really have a strong feeling about him either way. I, I feel like the revelation of his relationship to Dick Cheney is supposed to be like an emotional gut punch and it wasn't to no, me. No, because we never really got to know who that person really was. He was used I know and I know self-consciously to like that's the thing. Cause again, if you've seen the big short, Adam McKay is really big on very self-conscious style. Um very Oliver Stonish. Which is interesting if you compare this with W, which is probably less of an Oliver Stone movie, as you usually think of it, than Vices. Um, but it has a little bit of that similar problem with W, where you feel like, okay, well, for one thing, I'm not really getting to know the main character like I should. And when it comes time to a lot of the things that we already know, we already know them. It doesn't give yeah. us much about them either. Yeah. So the thing is, if you ask me at a very crude, like thumbs up, thumbs down level, I guess I would give this like a mild thumbs up. I definitely, ultimately I liked it, but my review is like very, it's like a mildly positive mm. with lots of reservations. I would be very positive about the performances. Uh, and also Steve Carell is in this movie as Donald Rumsfeld. As Donald Rumsfeld 
you know, again, if you want to see the range of Steve Carell, <laughs> you know, you, you get... And it, I think, like, actually, he's pretty funny in this movie at points. Yeah. There's this one scene where uh, where Cheney and Rumsfeld, they work in the Nixon White House. Uh, was Rumsfeld a chief of staff to someone? Or was he, like, a secretary of some kind? So... I'm trying to remember who he was. Yeah, well, he... Oh. I'm blanking on it. I, you're looking it up. Well, there's a point where uh, Cheney kind of asks Rumsfeld. He's Cheney it starts off as a congressional intern, basically. You're asking during the Nixon administration, not during the Bush administration. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I, I don't think they had that many scenes in the Bush administration. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, he was Secretary of Defense under Gerald Ford. And then he was Congressman um, and White House Chief of Staff. Yeah. Um, I was just double checking to be sure because I you. can't give the people wrong information. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you some political science-y things in a minute, Dr. Hughes. <laughs> um, but there's a point where uh, Cheney asks Rumsfeld, so what do we believe? And Rumsfeld just laughs and laughs and laughs and laughs. Um, and it, that's a really funny moment uh, because it... Also, I feel like Carell's having a lot of fun playing Rumsfeld as this guy who knows he's an asshole and everybody just kind of accepts it until they don't. And I think at one point Rumsfeld, like when he's kind of kicked out of the Nixon white house or the Ford white house or whatever. And he says, you know, I'm like, uh, I'm like bed bugs. You have to burn the bed to get rid of me. <laughs> um, so that's fun. But again, it's by a certain point in the movie, it becomes less about telling the story and just recounting events. Yeah. Here's when this happened. Here's when he decided to go for the oil in Iraq. Here's when they decided to ramp up with Fox news. Here's where they decided to do this. Here's when he shot the guy in the face, like without exploring that, like yeah. this either should have been more streamlined in a certain way, or it should have been maybe like, maybe if this had been a, like a mini series. Yeah. Because once, we're in kind of Dick Cheney's greatest hits. You know, we lived it. I yeah. <laughs> now, now I know it, that might not be fair for people who are younger who didn't live through it, and maybe they will have a different take on this, and that's cool. But I just, but I can't help what I feel, and this is, you know, I I came of age politically during the Bush administration. Yeah, I was I was there. When The Daily Show did their... Dick Cheney shot someone in the face gate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where the guy he shot apologized to him. Which, again, The Daily Show didn't tell me anything I didn't already know about Dick Cheney. But it was funnier than this treatment. Yeah, the, the idea, the humor of this movie, you know, it, it does, like, a couple of things. Like, for example, midway through the movie... It has, like, the title cards come up saying, like, and li then Liz Cheney wrote all these books about American history, and Dick Cheney never went into American politics again, yeah. and then the end credits roll up, and obviously that's pretty funny, uh, but I don't know, less funny is, like, that scene where the two of them talk Shakespeare in the bed. Yeah. That was not as successful. Yeah. And I liked... There's this running joke that every time Dick Cheney has a heart attack, he's totally chill about it. That's funny. That yeah. that's that's pretty funny. So like more stuff like that. I kind of feel like 
this movie was totally a little stranded where it lacked the gravitas to be a total to be like a totally satisfying biopic but it wasn't funny enough to be like a gonzo lark well it, it's it's tough because i have to think adam mckay must have been very conscious of that because again he was there when you know like will ferrell created his george w bush yeah. in on saturday night live for example so he knows how to do that kind of parody and Actually, it's kind of funny. You never saw Anchorman 2, right? No, I just saw... I like the first one, well, but I felt no need well, it's to funny see is that, Well, it's funny because the plot of Anchorman 2 involves, like, Ron Burgundy has to go to 24-hour news, mm-hmm. and he just starts making stuff up. Uh-huh. And that led, I think, to Matt Singer saying, Anchorman 2 is the better Dick Cheney movie than Vices <laughs> by Adam McKay. Um but also getting to stuff that's shallow, it's not just life events, it's also how it treats what Dick Cheney's political legacy is. And this is where I'm interested for you to repeat to me, because I'm still confused a little bit by it, the unitary executive uh, authority? Is that what it's unitary called? Unitary executive theory. theory. Well, first I want to say briefly... I think the reason why this movie feels a little shallow to me is it presents Dick Cheney as a very cunning in acquiring power, but the movie's not interested in exploring why Dick Cheney wants to be super powerful. So- yeah, that's that's a key problem. Like we we kind of early on it seems like he's just kind of going along with the flow. He picks uh he doesn't really so much pick to become a Republican as much as he just wants to kind of follow Rumsfeld and Rumsfeld's a Republican when he first gets to Washington. So I almost, I found that kind of interesting initially that he didn't really have deeply held beliefs. And in a way that made him easier to just become a Republican because as a Democrat, you do have to have deeply (laughs) held beliefs more often than not. But you need to have more than just that for a character. Yeah, so by the time we get to Iraq, and I mean, I think the closest thing the movie gets to, like, expressing a vision is that this was all to get to Iraq. But the movie doesn't even do, doesn't spend a lot of time exploring why Dick Cheney would be so interested in invading Iraq. I mean, it mentions... It mentions oil fields. It mentions, obviously, the the Halliburton contracts, you know, that... But it shows Dick Cheney as someone... The movie mentions how personally wealthy Dick Cheney is, but it doesn't seem to present him as a man who's driven primarily by wealth. No, and you know what? Here's something I don't know if I've mentioned said to you before, uh, before talking about this. I think if the movie had been more about him not having any held beliefs, yeah, maybe make it about that. Like, what if Dick Cheney had secretly been Peter Sellers and being there? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like in that sense, p- being there is a better version of Vice than this movie. <laughs> So this movie is all about, like, power, power, power. Dick Cheney is really good at amassing power. He's this, like, master tactician. Not that it takes much to be a master tech, tech, eh, 
tactician when you're dealing with George W. Bush. But anyway, it's all about like power, power, power. And it's about this idea that Cheney is basically the shadow president during the Bush administration. And that Cheney and Cheney's people are really running the White House, which... Duh, we all knew that when Bush was president. So this uh, in and of itself is not some big revelation. And it's kind of like, okay, power, power, power. What do you want to do with that power? Yeah. And uh, and it it also builds up again the 70s. It's like he's the one with Rumsfeld. And I think Anton Scalia gets name checked too about what the unitary executive theory is, which it means in brief that what are the unchecked powers of the president? Can yeah. a president basically do whatever he wants? And obviously being in the Nixon White House, that was something I'm sure they thought about quite a bit. I should mention, if you're very well-versed in political science, you might have a few nitpicks with like, this film. Like you are. Now, there are two big things, but you mentioned also, they mentioned something about the military that got under your skin. All right. Also, I should mention that one of the nitpicks... I said to you right after we saw this movie, I was wrong in the sense that I misremembered what the movie said. So it's not like what I told you was factually wrong. It's just that I misremembered what the movie said. Well, what does the movie say? Okay. Well, first, let's get into unitary executive theory. Um, The movie is pretty... um, Let's just say that unitary executive theory is a bit more complex than the movie makes it sound like. And unitary executive theory didn't originate from this desire to give the president absolute unfettered power to do exactly what he wanted. Um, I mean, in 2018, there are there's what we call strong unitary executive theory, which does give the president kind of a blank check. Mm -hmm. But the origin of unitary executive theory as a theory was not let's let the president do whatever he wants. Unitary executive theory starts from the idea that there is no executive power within the executive branch that doesn't come from the president. Okay. So, so basically the president is God. Well, the president, there is no, no one within the executive branch can challenge the power of the president and the president's purview over the executive branch is kind of sacrosanct. Yeah. And, and so I think my thought was maybe the movie, one of its main points is because Dick Cheney becomes this shadow vice president he basically gets the he basically tests the unitary executive theory before himself. Yeah. Um but this idea the movie as you can imagine it's a movie has to kind of like flatten a few things because within the field of unitary executive theory there are debates about executive power and now we kind of break down weak unitary executive theory and strong unitary executive theory and the strong unitary executive theory is kind of in line with what Cheney was arguing and I'm not going to go into detail about like the independent council and Morrison versus Olson and you have to take one of Corey's classes at Baruch to get more detail about um, that. But yeah, so I had a few like 
minor nitpicks that frankly are very very pedantic but i'm sorry that irritated me a little bit no 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 i'm again i found this to be really fascinating just in the sense that comparing it to how adam mckay handled the big short that was a that was a case where he was trying to explain to a general audience you know again a movie that's on thousands of screens here are some of the main points about the housing crisis but now he's doing it for something that shouldn't be that hard to explain. Well, there's this other thing, too, where the movie has this aside about how if the Fairness Doctrine hadn't been abolished, we wouldn't have to deal with Fox News, when in reality, the Fairness Doctrine would not have applied to a cable news station. Hmm. It would only apply to radio and network television. Yeah. Or there's this... He references the Frank Luntz um, death panel focus group. Yeah, you actually see you see Frank Luntz is kind of a, a character for a few scenes. And the movie insinuates that this was something that was going on during the Bush administration. When no, this was something that was really going on during the Clinton administration mm. after the Republicans. You know, something that occurred to me with this movie, you know, like it. I feel like when I talked about how, um, I told this to a friend of mine too after I saw the movie online, that this movie tries to make certain audience members feel guilty as if they didn't do enough during those years. There were protests happening against Bush in the Iraq war. They didn't show any of that. Like they only kind of show all you dumb Americans who supported the Iraq war, which Okay, yeah, like Hillary Clinton, for example, they show a clip of her in the movie, but not everybody was just getting like accepting all the the Fed horse shit about after nine eleven. That's true. Um, unfortunately, though, enough people bought into it, but we didn't. No, oh. we can say we saw the, through this crap from minute one. Yeah, and like this that whole smoking gun in the cover of a mushroom cloud or whatever they, that line was. And I think maybe part of the point in the second part of the movie is that it's really only, it's really mostly through propaganda that somebody like Cheney can thrive. If like they can easily push out this message that people take in. Yeah. And I know that we also talked about how they try to contrast, like there's a scene where Cheney's with his family and they're talking about American Idol yeah. And they contrast that with uh, the Iraq War, I think. Well, yeah, I I do appreciate the movie references how politicians are insulated from the pain that they cause us, the regular people. Yeah. That these, ri- that like, these rich white assholes can kind of destroy destroy the economy, destroy other countries, and they'll never suffer for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, but yeah, that, that's, those are good points. And I think the movie tries to show that, but, and also, you know, Saddam, all he was obsessed with were like nineties Hollywood movies. But I think you're right that the second half of the movie is trying to cover so much ground it can only make its points in a kind of shallow way. It becomes kind of breathless. It's trying to make so many points so quickly. Yeah. It still, again, needs to be the, a, a movie about Dick Cheney. 
Um, which leads to the, the last section about his heart and all that. Um, and I feel like in a way, Dick Cheney, the, it, it, the movie kind of gets away from him and it shouldn't, you know, it, it, you know, and cause Christian Bale is, he is Dick Cheney in this movie. He is so like, yeah. he, he basically subsumes himself into this role. And, you know, Amy Adams also does that to an extent, but I feel like in some ways the script kind of lets them down. Yeah. My, my favorite thing about this movie as a Dick Cheney biopic was how it depicted the marriage between Dick Cheney and Lynn Cheney. Yeah. There's a bit, as I mentioned to you too, this is, she comes off a bit like her character in the master where she's, you know, she knows that this guy is a, a mediocre man and, you know, she can kind of manipulate so things. So they really sell Lynn Cheney as one of these, like, power behind the throne types. And she flat out says, I know because I'm a woman, I will never be able to kind of wield the political power that you can wield. But I'm ambitious. I have goals. I want to wield power. So mm. through controlling you. Yeah. I also mentioned to you, though, as long as McKay was just throwing out references willy-nilly to everything, I would have loved a name check of Lynn Cheney's lesbian pioneer romance novel. <laughs> Do you remember the name of it? I think it's called, like, Pioneers or something. Let me just Google it. Mm, um, it wasn't anything more daring than that. Yeah, well, that's one thing. The movie... It, it, I don't know if you necessarily say he, it's meant to humanize Cheney, but to show that he had like one percent or two percent of his life where he wasn't. Oh, it's called Sisters. Yeah, he it wasn't. He had like two seconds of his life where he wasn't a complete scumbag, where his, his daughter Mary Cheney uh, came out to him and and his mother, and he actually was like, "All right, we'll love you anyway, you know, no matter what happens." What I love too, that what I love though is that the mother says, uh, "This is going to ruin your career, um, your political career." Although later, that kind of that his own moment of trying to be a decent person kind of comes back though around though when he is perfectly fine with their other daughter, you know, supporting a, a ban on gay marriage. Um, I think you also had a problem with that. Oh, yeah. I also had... um, This is a nitpick, but... When they're talking about... When George W. Bush is talking to Dick Cheney about being his VP, he mentions to him, well, we're going to have to campaign a lot against gay marriage. And that was more a 2004 thing than a 2000 thing. Yeah, I don't think anybody was really talking about... I don't remember gay marriage being a thing in high school at all. Well, I mean, you had the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, and you had a bunch of states that passed state-level Defense of Marriage Acts from 96 to 98. But then, again... It kind of went quiet after that until Massachusetts legalized same-sex marriage in 2003. And that's why... Which is where you get to that Supreme Court thing from Scalia, right? About the uh, pretty soon we'll allow animals to have sex. (laughs) Well, that was in Lawrence v. Texas. Oh, um, Which overturned the sodomy ban in Texas. Yeah. And so, yeah, this idea that gay marriage was some big issue in the 2000 election. No, not really. And again, I wanted to tell 
Adam McKay, like, this wasn't that long ago. Most of the people watching this movie were probably yeah. politically conscious in 2000. Like, even if he was getting his research off Wikipedia, I feel like he could have done a better job at certain points. Yeah. Now, the thing that I initially complained to you about, although I was wrong about, was I thought the movie suggested that the concept of the enemy combatant as a legal term originated from the bush administration Mm -hmm. when it didn't yeah but no i was wrong in my characterization of the film oh so did you read like in a review yes i read a review that quoted the line Mm -hmm. and my remembering of it was wrong so you were just looking for things to nitpick i was you're being a bad critic i was oh um one last little quick thing what did you think of sam rockwell I thought he was fine. I thought he was good. I thought. Did he that- feel like at all he might have been in like from a different movie though? Here's the thing: was he trying to be a little bit like jokey, where everyone else was trying to be a little more realistic? And I say that by the way, Tyler, Tyler Perry's in this too. And he <laughs> plays uh, and he plays uh, human doormat Colin Powell. Yeah, and he's fine. Like I, I had, I had kind of fun watching Sam Rockwell, even though. I felt like the way George W. Bush was written was a bit more one note. And maybe that was the idea is that this is George W. Bush from Dick Cheney's point of view. The only thing I didn't like is I thought of anything, the movie let George W. Bush off the hook too much. I felt like I have to wonder, though, if he was completely aloof to things. I have to think that it, I know that it, everybody thinks, oh, he wanted to go into Iraq to please his daddy, which obviously that was part of it, Uh. but he had to have had some interests there too. Yeah, so I kind of feel like the movie is a little soft on W. Bush. Yeah, and I'm not saying you need to make it where, you know, Bush and Cheney are both, you know, on the same level, because clearly that wasn't the case, but it might have tilted a little bit too much in the other way, where... Cheney had 100% power and Bush is there as, you know, dance, monkey, dance. Yeah, and I mean, again, it was no secret that Bush was kind of a weak president in the sense that he let himself be led by Cheney. But I I don't like kind of revisionist history that tries to let George W. Bush off the hook. Yeah. And, you know... Harry Truman had that sign that said the buck stops here for a reason. Yeah. At the end of the day, Bush um, enabled this man, if nothing else. And I I think the movie lets him off the hook a little too much. Yeah. But I was fine with Sam Rockwell's portrayal. Yeah. I, I, again, he, he kind of pops in and out as um, maybe not unlike on the, you know, in the movie W, Dick Cheney kind of pops in and out there mm. and will occasionally, you know, occasionally made like kind of an Who ominous thing. W? Richard Dreyfus. Okay. He looked a lot like Chaney in that too. They, they, they had some decent casting. In Christian that movie. Bale really does. Yeah. Down to like, so just how he moves his head. He nailed the mouth too. Yeah. He nailed the penguin. He nailed yeah. that look of. Did he nailed Dick Cheney's like mouth movements so perfectly? Yeah, yeah, he nailed his mouth movements. There was like a real. I thought there was this really great 
funny scene where he's just it's after he first meets with bush and he's kind of contemplating his plan uh-huh. and he ta- there's almost like a minute of film where he's just rinsing his mouth with mouthwash <laughs> it's like the most ominous mouthwashing you've <laughs> ever seen in a movie where he's just like like mouthwash 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 contemplate it's like i love how long that scene goes on for (laughs) like that almost might be my favorite scene in the movie i have a question for you what did you think of his closing speech it i i I think among obvious things in the movie it's not something that annoyed me as much as other stuff like in the last five to ten minutes of this it almost becomes just like a montage of things uh, and I found that a little more annoying when he turns to talk to the audience. I, I guess it puts a fine point that he not only has never changed, he's gotten to be worse as a character. Um, I thought Bale was good in that moment. Um, but I, I don't know about the writing of that. I would need to watch it again. Maybe that, that was the kind of scene that I think if I saw the movie a second time, that could work better for me. See, I'm I'm a little embarrassed of this. I actually liked the speech, even though I think it's a very clumsy device. It is a clumsy device. It's meant to put like a point on his story that I'm not sure if the rest of the movie supports but fully. I like the speech. Because it's the one moment where McKay is giving me something in terms of, okay, this is what really motivated this person. Yeah. And I almost feel like that speech could have and should have been used to kind of build an arc. Yeah. For Cheney. Yeah. And it's like, you see the start of the arc. It doesn't quite finish. And I feel like that speech is him trying to scramble to put like an end. It's almost like if you had a student's paper mm. and it had a really strong first part, it ha- it has a lot of stuff that kind of just starts to be bullet points. But then the concluding paragraph is, is really good. It made me wonder what if the movie had been more in the vein of something like house of cards, where in house of cards, you have, a villainous character who speaks directly to the audience to try to seduce the audience into going along with their villainy. Mm. So it made me wonder, like, what would I have felt like if this movie had been Dick Cheney trying to convince me of his vision? Actually, you know what is the one thing that does work about that structurally? It actually does connect maybe in a way to when he's trying to run for Congress in 78, which is the first heart attack. Yeah. Um, in that scene, he's very, he's very awkward in public. It kind of, it's meant to show why he was never that kind of politician. Yeah. He was always a guy behind the scenes or again, CEO Halbert. Couldn't give a good speech, had no charisma. Couldn't give a speech and had no charisma. At the end, he does have that charisma. Yeah. And that, I don't know about you, but I thought that speech was very Frank Underwoody. Yeah, it was Underwoody. Um, I think the problem is, though, he's... But Frank Underwood has more motivation. So when he talks to the audience, it makes more sense. 
with that, again, it felt a little bit more rushed within the context of the thing. Unto itself, it's a good speech. But I feel like as a yeah. final point, it's both satisfying and unsatisfying, if but that yeah, makes sense. I wish... Part of me wondered, like, I wish McKay had almost made the movie more from the perspective of Cheney. Yeah, instead, again, instead of it being this outsider guy who's telling us, so this is what happened here. Here's why, no, we didn't have this. This is what Al Zarqawi was doing. This is how he became this thing, and blah, blah, Um, So, I don't know, final thoughts about it? Like, I guess you said it's mild thumbs up, but I think you were a little disappointed, maybe. I was. I won't lie. I had really high expectations for this movie. I thought the trailer looked amazing. Yeah, the trailer looked like it was going to be gangbusters. Um, and that I, scene is in the movie. I really liked the big short. I thought the big short was both more substantive and like more amusing. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, this doesn't have... You know, you don't get a Margot Robbie in a bathtub scene in this movie. So, I would say I was a little disappointed only because my expectations were, like, that this movie would be great. Like, for instance, there was a good... There was a part of me that thought, like, oh, this movie's gonna go on my top ten list of the year when I see it. Yeah. So, again, mild thumbs up, but I was expecting yeah. more. And not a, not a Marwin disaster. No, not a Marwin disaster <laughs> at all. And again, this movie, it is entertaining, and I wouldn't be surprised if 18 months from now, when it's on regular rotation on HBO, I'll probably even, like, rewatch parts of it. Well, well, that's probably an ideal way to see it. And I'm, I'm saying, if you do want to see this movie in a theater, you know, you should, you know, you might want to check it out just so you can see, you know, what Bale does on a big screen. But when it comes time for cable, that's a good movie as far as, you know, you can tune in and watch that scene and then, you know, go use the bathroom. And then you can come back and watch that part. And if you need to use your phone for something, you might not be missing much during this other section. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it's good. It is a good movie. I just wish it was better. So, um, yeah, thanks for listening uh, to us talk for quite a while uh, about these two movies, which are out now. Uh, maybe if you see Welcome to Marwin, I don't know if it's about to be yanked from theaters. I was going to say, <laughs> it's, see it's it like, while you can. I was going to say, this is like... When did this open? This opened uh, technically last Friday. It okay. didn't open on Christmas Day. Like, this is probably going to be, this probably will stay in theaters the same amount of time like Bonfire of the Vanities did, <laughs> which also opened Christmas. Uh, but if you see other movies, please let us know. Uh, you can always email us at wageofcinema at gmail.com. Also, we're on Facebook and Twitter if you want to leave us a message there. Uh, you can also rate us on iTunes. It always helps us there doing stuff. Uh, and when we come back next time, hopefully we'll have better movies for, to talk about with you. Also, in the new year of 2019, we're going to have a new um, year-long project, which we'll uh, announce very soon. We're gonna I am tease. so excited about our year-long project. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to tease it a little bit. I'm trying to... Uh, Build the anticipation. Oh, man. <laughs> That's why I love you for moments like that. <laughs> I know you're not a big Rocky Horror fan. So. Oh, but you didn't really say it like that. You, you mean it like, anticipation.
I'm no Tim Curry. Oh, but you're Tim Curry in my heart. Aww. All right. You're Tim so, Curry in my heart. Aw. All right. Well, thank you for listening, guys. And I hope you have a happy new year. And remember, the wages of cinema is death. Hugs. And as Dick Chan would say, uh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs>